Hi, and welcome to PH Drinking, the podcast where I interview grad students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a fourth-year graduate student uh, in Northwestern Psychology Department, and uh, her cool fact is that she was on a record-breaking CD country album. Is that right? Yeah, number one <laughs> single <laughs> with uh, Dirks Bentley. I... Uh, was approached in a bar by apparently Dirk Spentley. Um, I'm not a huge country fan, but I was living in Nashville. so. Um, and he asked, uh, he said he didn't have enough money to pay backup singers and asked if I could sing or if I was a part of a musician's union. And um, we went to his studio. I got in <laughs> with a stranger who bought my drinks and um, they looped my voice over and over and uh, videotaped it for the making of, and so I'm also on his uh, tour special features as a girl standing with a beer in the background singing the same thing over and over, and <laughs> my voice got modulated up and down, and so it was, it's really funny to hear and think about how, like, oh, those men voices, those, those are also me. Those are also me, just yeah. masculinized. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, welcome, Kate yeah. Danby. Thanks for being on the show. Number one country artist. <laughs> I know. You're the biggest deal we've had on yet. Um, and I would normally ask you what you're drinking, but we just finished some very large milkshakes. So we don't actually have drinks, but we can fake cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Clink. Um, yeah, but we're actually here to talk about your research. So you study patient populations looking at... Um, you actually look at brains. Not human... Not cut up brains. You don't do uh, slicing of human brains, but you do look at MRI stuff. Yeah. And the, it's funny that you say that because the thing that I always tell my RAs and I say is the biggest barrier to learning um, fMRI and MRI is it's not a brain. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a brain, but it's not a brain. Yeah. Because it is very deceiving because you're always measuring proton density or blood levels and it looks like a brain right that's all the outline yeah but it's a trick it's a trick and it's always been a trick so. <laughs> well, and do students get like when you first start your research do they understand what bold is um or so do you have to like start from a very basic understanding so you do have to start from a very basic understanding and maybe they've heard it in their intro to neuroscience class um depending on who taught it i have i was working with robin on that and he definitely covers it um, but it is something that they come in and they think they're excited about brains and they want to look at the pictures and they want to have the results and they want the rainbow brains and the glowing colors and that's what they're very excited about. But um, I have a weekly or bi-weekly uh, sort of like a reading um, group with them, but it's overall skills. We go through textbooks, we go through... Um, different features of MRI and different concepts. And the main thing that we start and we end with every time is, this is not a brain. <laughs> and so, like, today we're talking about resting state. This is not a brain. What is this? And then they'll have done the readings and they'll say, you know, this is intercorrelation matrix between different brain regions using spotlight. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. It's not right. a brain. Not a brain. It looks like a brain. Yeah. Um, we have a We can show pretty pictures of brains, but what we're really looking at is blood flow or yeah. the connections between the different areas yeah. or And in my area of research cheats, we we pretend that we have brains and we can make our <laughs> data 
look like brains. And we're like, look at this sexy brain image. And then all of the other MRI people are like, that's a proton density map. And you're like, yeah. This right. is the shape of the brain. But they just see a pretty rando brain. Yeah. <laughs> no one asks questions. I feel so. like when people ask me, yeah. they're like, well, what, like, what is like MRI besides like just looking at the brain? I'm like, you know the picture from the Muse album where it's like the rainbow brain? <laughs> yeah. That is essentially <laughs> what half of the research looks like these days. <laughs> yeah. like, exactly. Um, but what do you, okay, so you use MRI and you yeah. use brain-like images, but what are you studying? Like, what is your big research question? So one thing that I'm very interested in is looking at biological mechanisms and structure and function. A lot of people look at structure in isolation and function in isolation, but really they get to very interesting questions about state-related vulnerability and trait-related vulnerability because there are certain features of your brain structure that don't change very much or at all over time. Gyrification seems to be something that develops in the last trimester. Um, and then Gyrification she- meaning the lumps in the brain, like what yes. makes it look like a squiggly <laughs> pasta. Yeah, no, yeah, I know yeah, what you yeah. mean, but <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> My mom who uh, listens to this podcast is like, gyrification, how do I spell this? <laughs> gyrification, yeah. So when your brain's developing, it um, starts to build out and expand as much as it can, and it runs into your skull and it starts to fold to make more space for more cells. And that pretty much finishes up by the time that you're born, and it's just refining connections after that. And other things do change related to structure, like your cortical thickness will change over time, and um, the size of your ventricles will change over time. Um, But traits, there are certain trait features that don't change, and um, cortical thickness is something that tends not to change very much. Um, in an individual, and uh, white matter tractography I look at, and that tends not to change very much. It'll change over the course of the years. Mm-hmm. But I'm also looking at fMRI and fMRI connectivity and seeing how um, we can look at this structure and see certain vulnerabilities and how those relate to state-related vulnerabilities. So you have things like reward stimulus reactivity. So if you see something that you want, how much... Um, Do you react to that? Like, are you very sensitive to that? Do you kind of ignore it? Um, Versus someone who may not have a sensitivity to reward. They may be like, have depression and anhedonia. And yes, they see that they could win $5, but they don't really care. (laughs) So So you're looking at like what people normally think of as behavioral data and relating it to both the, the state of the current, how the brain looks, but also its functional connections. And yeah. how it might have to do with the interactions of areas that's leading to, yeah, reward uh, approach or avoidance, reward basically. Reward approach and avoidance, yeah. So I'm looking at reinfor- reinforcement learning. And one, one thing that we've done for a long time in a clinical field is we've looked at, all, like I said, all these areas in isolation. So we've said, um, let's characterize everything about the bipolar brain, which is, you know, there's a right. lot of individual differences. There's no one bipolar brain. Um, But they look at this compared to healthy brain development. And then uh, they look at the schizophrenic brain and healthy brain development. And then they look at it in these isolated categories, too, of functional data. So what does the blood flow in the brain look like when um, they're trying to do a task? And how is that different from healthy people trying to do the same task? Um, But some of these things, a lot of these things aren't related across these measures, And you come up with these huge literatures where it's like, 
the amygdala volume is enlarged in people with bipolar disorder is one finding. And then they'll say, well, their amygdalas are more reactive than people um, to fear stimulus and reward stimulus. And Mm -hmm. then you have all of these building findings around the amygdala. And nobody's looking at, well, is this related to the increase in volume size? Right. Is the volume... Can you get into questions of, is the volume increasing because it is more sensitive or... um, that its increased size has led to higher sensitivity. Can you get to a chicken and egg problem in this case, or is it at least... So one of the ways that we are particularly trying to get to this chicken or egg problem is um, we're looking at people who have some features of disorders, but not enough um, that interfere with their life. So and like pre, pre-clinical, pre... Pre-clinical. So we yeah. call these our like ultra-high-risk patients. And so they may um, need very little sleep, They may be go-getters, they may be very sensitive, they may engage in really risky behaviors for people who are high-risk for mania, Mm -hmm. or you have our high-risk populations for depression where they have a lot of low self-esteem, they have a lot of the avoidance-type behaviors, but they're not, it's not inhibiting their life and they don't feel, they don't meet the full criteria for depression. Yeah. We look at these people who have a lot of the similar behavioral features, and we look and see if they have similar structural features. Mm. We follow them over time to see if they convert to the disorder. Um, and then we can look at how, how they're developing over time and if they're starting to look more like the clinical population. And if not, if they look separate, then we can say, like, this is probably something that's happening along the course of treatment. This could be something that's happening to help them cope with the low-functioning state that happens after an onset of the disorder. Um, so you can see if it's a continuous issue of, like, are these brain changes happening, which is leading to the definition of the disorder, or are they getting officially diagnosed with the disorder, and, and then, then the brain that. is compensating by changing in order exactly. to deal with the disorder. Exactly. So then yeah. it should relate to time since onset yeah. rather than being in present in the risk population. So those are the types of things that I'm trying to parse out. I'm trying to look for early structural features that um, make people particularly vulnerable. Um, if those affect function, and if so, how? And then trying to see if they're present in the patient population, medicated or unmedicated. So Yeah, I didn't even think about you do have to deal with, with what kind of medications are people taking because that's going to obviously alter function, um, yeah. hopefully for the better for them, <laughs> but also changes your research findings. Right. And so one of the things that I mentioned before with the amygdala, which um, a lot of people might know as like a fear center of the brain, but... Um, it does a lot of things. <laughs> a lot, a lot of things. Not um, just fear. <laughs> not just fear. It pro- it, some people describe it as like an amplifier of alertness, attention, and that's kind of how I tend to more think of it as like anything that's important. So like um, high reward, but also, yeah, fear stimuli or... Yeah, or even attentional research focuses Is a it lot involved in an arousal? Like even like sexual yeah. arousal? Because that's also a high yes. like alert state. Yes. If you if you flash someone a nudie pic, their amygdala will catch it. Yeah, I, mean, even, I think you're even scared if, of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> even, actually, even if it's pre-conscious. Really? So if it's so quick that, that they yeah. don't realize they saw it, you'll still yeah. get an amygdala? And, and you can get an, an emotional, attentional blink. So... That's wild. That's, it's, it's pretty wild. It's pretty fascinating. Um, but uh, so you, with this amygdala change, you can look at medications. And in the past, people have found medications like uh, lithium do increase your amygdala volume. Hmm. 
So if lithium is increasing your amygdala volume, but you're also finding people who are pre-bipolar disorder, it becomes this sort of issue too of, is it, um, is it the input to the amygdala that's changing? Is it the output from the amygdala? Is it how the amygdala is relating to all the other brain areas that's changing mm-hmm. across these people? And so you can get at some of that with things like graph theory analysis that look at how one area of the brain relates to all of the other areas like of the brain. Like how tightly connected it is in terms of, yeah. of how many connections and how often they talk. Exactly. Right? And how tightly they're coupled. So yeah. if this guy's on, is this guy always off or is it sometimes off, sometimes on? Um, do they always look like they're doing the same thing? And um, having those changes um, occurring can tell us a lot about what might be happening at a lower level. Well, I feel like that's also becoming a bigger area of research, especially in neuroscience and psychology, because we used to think of, first we thought of the brain as a soup, um, where it was all just kind of looked the same when, you know, when we first started cutting into it. Now we think of it hypermodularly, where we're like, okay, there's the frontal cortex, there's the, the you know, the occipital cortex, there's the amygdala, and we're, we tend to think of it in these highly specified areas, but really it's about how they're working with each other and how they're changing together or not changing together. And they're all single nodes in this huge network. And that's something that um, if you ever read anything that I've ever written, I sneak that in there somehow. <laughs> is that, yes, we're just talking about like these four connections because they're very straightforward in how they relate to each other. They're unidirectional or some mm-hmm. reason that we're looking at them for this question. But it's one piece in a huge network, and there's a lot of stuff going on here. And we're just capturing such a small snapshot of two things happening, where it's like asking asking a person about a single day versus asking them to tell you their life story. Yeah. You're capturing <laughs> such little information. You're like, this can tell us a little bit of something. But we really do need to have a broader perspective on how it's relating to everything and how these areas that are highly connected could change a lot of things downstream especially early detectors and you have to start with a smaller number of things to to follow otherwise your analyses get so complex that even if you (laughs) find something trying to explain to someone it's like yeah but when we did this to x y changed a little bit but then we saw that z was reacting only to y but not to x people are like no i'm not following this yeah well and something that's complicated that i'm constantly in fear of which is why um structural is very um, approachable and so is resting state is um, what if the brain isn't cutting up information the way that we think the brain should hmm. so um, and what I mean by that for everyone is whenever we're doing an fMRI task we're comparing something yeah right it's always a comparison it's like what does the brain look like when you get a reward versus when you don't and it's yeah. a contrast and you see what areas light quote unquote light up preferentially for one than the other is that what you mean right But there are a lot of areas involved in coding wins and losses and predictions, and they're predicting for both. Hmm. And it looks like they don't exist in those pictures. Oh, because they're 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 always there. For all of those things. Mm. And so then there's a lot of things that are involved, and they might be involved in neutral too. And so they're encoding information, they're changing gears or doing something constantly. Um, but what we might actually be cut, catching is like the clutch between the two is what I always think of it. You know, you're, you're in drive and then all of a sudden you're comparing drive to reverse 
And what you're going to see is the clutch when you have a whole car. Right. That's if you're actually doing if a you're lot just of different measuring things. measuring acceleration and you yeah. didn't have direction, yeah. then, yeah, you'd only see the clutch because that's when you have the change in acceleration, regardless yeah. whether you're going backwards or forwards. Yep. Yeah. That's the thing about the system that you would be seeing differently. And so then I have this very deep concern about the clutch problem <laughs> is how I like to think of it. But it is something where it's where I think that especially when you're working with abnormal populations that have a lot of different things happening um, in their brain and how they're perceiving stimuli and how they're behaving, um, you start to wonder um, what you're not picking up on and whether you're dividing information in a way that will really capture what's going on in this person. So that becomes a complicated issue. So when you're and I mean, not only like how they're dividing things in their brain, but also how we decide what is preclinical versus clinical, like what were the lines between high risk? Are you using like the DSM, which is the diagnostic something manual? Statistics manual, which is hilarious. What statistics are in there though? None. <laughs> like, so, so somebody will probably listen to this and correct me on that. There are some statistics in there, but the diagnoses were not generated based on statistics. Um... I think that when I was an undergraduate, I had taken, I had come at psychology with a background in biology and some sciences, and I um, heard the DSM, and I'm like, oh, good. So what they did was a massive survey of clinical psychology, <laughs> and then they did clustering analysis to see which symptoms hung together, right. and they made dissociable categories, which is not at no. All historically, what we were like, we have hysteria because women's wombs wander, and now we're like, no, but it's like mania, which is they're just things that we decided to name, and then we like give yeah. a few examples of it. If you, it's a checklist, right? If you hit yeah. X number of things out of the entire ten, then you're decided that you're officially depressed or whatever. Yeah, and so that that gets very complicated, and they've tried to rework the DSM now so that they have more of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Bipolar disorder is one that, um, that was something that happened early. I also look at schizophrenia, and that's something that they have early, too, um, because there are people who have psychotic episodes, and they have one, and then they're fine, and they're done. They don't actually have one in another one in their life. Yeah. Um... It's not that common, but it does happen. <laughs> right. Um, and you want to, tr- but you definitely want to treat them differently than someone who has florid psychosis that comes in and out, um, someone who has more chronic issues. And so to have that sort of spectrum of looking at these disorganized thoughts, these disorganized behaviors, maybe hallucinations, maybe delusions. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have minor delusions that don't interfere with your life. Versus, what counts as a minor delusion? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it depends on who you ask. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just saying, you're, you're technically not in the clinical field anymore, no, quote no. unquote. But <laughs> no. um, Yeah, there was too much time talking to people and not enough time talking at my brains. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think... Uh, I think that uh, something that you could consider a minor delusion would be we had a guy who was highly functioning. He was maintaining a job, paying his rent, doing all of the things. Um, He thought he was dating a supermodel. Was he dating anyone? He wasn't dating anyone. Um, She only liked to come and visit him while he was asleep. Oh. And um, she was sending him messages in the... Like coded messages. Yeah, in the magazine covers. Like, she would put a magazine that she was on the cover on, 
like in a store that he walked by and so then he would see her and like if a kid was in the ad he'd know that they had had another child um but he just didn't talk about it much because people were always weird about it so he's, in, he's like it's really none of their business anyways i feel I'm like some weird like religious model. some weird religious beliefs think it almost sound like a minor delusion not to say that religion is a delusion i don't want to get into the religion debate right now but but like people's beliefs that like they're getting a secret message from you know a spirit or god or something and that's and And it's not infringing on their life but like maybe just (laughs) happened to happen that way yeah so it's it's an interesting debate in the delusion field because you can have someone who comes in and says i hear voices Mm mm-hmm they one of them's the devil and one of them's a saint and they tell me things and then you do have to stop and say what religion are you is this normal for your culture do you feel like and then if it's normal for their culture it's kind of something you have to take into consideration and not maybe give them a label because it could be an experience that's culturally um selective and well, I mean, we talk aloud to ourselves often, and we I don't consider myself having a delusion when I'm home by myself and, I'm, like, talking to myself. Yeah. yeah, and that's definitely not a delusion. Um, the delusion, it would be more like uh, the devil is telling me that my boyfriend is eating all of my cheese or something yeah. like that, where it's usually you know? pretty, pretty specific, and it has a lot of context, and... Um, and it's a belief that's usually odd, but it's also something that, like, you do have to take some care to actually consider whether that it could be the fact that your boyfriend is eating all your cheese, and that's right. not a delusion. Right, but, that could be really but happening. Then, <laughs> but then how you deal with that is the thing that is a little bit um, dysfunctional, yeah. because you need to be able to talk about so it. So then how do you... It. How do you find a preclinical population to look at? Like, I for, mean, for schizophrenia? Yeah. I mean, is there a database? Is... <laughs> yeah, so they come in and they usually meet some symptom criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of it is... So a lot of times if they have paranoid thoughts or delusions, they'll tell you about them. Um, you have to wait the ones that are, like I said, culturally um, normalized with less weight. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times people who think they might have bipolar disorder or think that they might have schizophrenia or truly and deeply suffering. And so they're coming to, they're seeking out these opportunities and they are, it's not easy. And <laughs> there's not a lot of them. It's like 1% of the population has schizophrenia and something like 4% are diagnosed with bipolar disorder globally. So it's not. Yeah. It's a not ton of super people. prevalent. But the, the people who do have it, it does significantly interfere with their life. Um, some of the symptoms for schizophrenia, like they feel like they don't ha- are having thoughts stolen from them. They can't think because they have less thoughts than they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's things that typically occur to other people aren't occurring to them. Their thoughts are disorganized. Sometimes they try and talk and their grammar gets disorganized and it's called word salad um and things things like that where other people will notice and they'll say you know i think something's going on with you yeah um and suggest that they come in and a lot of times with bipolar disorder it ends up being um something where they don't feel like they need to come in for it because mania feels good right depression feels bad so they come in when they're depressed maybe 
or they wait until they're manic again because then they feel better. Yeah. Um, and it's usually a loved one saying, like, you haven't slept in four days. Yeah, and or, I know you think you're being productive, but, like... <laughs> you're rearranging the furniture at 5 a.m., and maybe maybe you should sleep. Yeah. Or you went on a spending spree and maxed out a ton of credit cards, which is something that's very common. Um, or went on a went on a drug binge or something like that because you have this unbridled, like thrill seeking, pursuit seeking, right. um, driven. You just feel like you could not stop. And that's also why people who are bipolar tend to go off their medication when they think they can handle it and then they hit a mania spell and they're like, see, I'm great. And you're like, nope, nope, we're back on the roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's really complicated too, because, um, a lot of times going on and off medications can really affect their symptom course. Oh, and, yeah. And those types of things we think can be. So those are types of things that we need to try and dissociate from early markers of the disorder to outcomes of the disorder. Mm-hmm. So there are, as you know, as a sleep researcher, there are serious impacts of not sleeping for four days. Yeah. <laughs> and once you start having mania and that's something that introduces into your life, that is going to have changes on the brain. Right. And then the so, question is, did, did the mania cause it or was it the <laughs> mania not allowing you to sleep that then caused these new problems? These new neurological problems, these new structural issues, these new functional issues. So that's one of the reasons that looking at these um, preclinical populations becomes so important because they're not staying up for days at a time and they're not, you know, going on these drug binges, which also affects brain chemistry Imagine and structure that. and function. <laughs> Um, so all of these things, uh, can happen as a result of the disorder and, um, need to be separated out so that we can get in early and help people before, um, they really are suffering and out of feeling like they're out of their control of their own lives. Yeah. So that's the goal is catching it early, <laughs> understanding what is actually causing it versus being caused by it. And, uh. Being able to then identify better ways to get involved and so it's, really make changes. It's not preventative care, but it is like pre-clinical understanding to create ways that we can have preventative care that are effective, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Instead of saying, here's a comprehensive list of everything that's different between this group who engages in like different behaviors mm-hmm. and has different lifestyle <laughs> and different levels of health. Um you're starting to look at, okay, here are people who are doing great. Here are people who are struggling with similar issues. Here are people who have the whole blind disorder. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you, did you know when you got into psychology that this was like an area that you really wanted to be researching? Like, did you always know that you were interested in, in? So I was, I started out in a histology lab cutting up brains. Human um, brains or like mice veterinary brains? Veterinary pathology lab. So cow oh. brains, sheep brains, chicken brains. Um, that was my uncle's doing. He's a veterinary pathologist and was like, come work for me. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to do that. Things are dead and I hate blood. And he was like, but I'll let you cut up the brains. <laughs> so, um, there was a little bit of brightening going on. But uh, I did that and um, spent a lot of time cutting other types of tissue to cut brains, but was very excited about looking at brains. Um, thought maybe psychology and biology as a combination would work for me, um, and got really interested in risk-taking behaviors and reward-seeking behaviors. Um, and risk-taking is a little bit more complicated because sometimes it um, involves some not-so-nice paradigms. So <laughs> yes. I started focusing more on the reward and risk 
risk seeking to get reward. Mm. So instead of like paradigms where people get punished and I don't, I don't like that. I want people to be happy. (laughs) Um, And then once I started looking at risk taking and what was going on with these people who were behaving so differently, um, I started learning about how it's different in adolescents, how it's different in the elderly and these clinical populations and really got excited about helping people make better decisions and um, understanding how they're learning about their environment in general, really. Yeah. No, I think that, like, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Because I think a lot of people assume that psychology is just about how the, how clinical populations come to be and defining it and... Like, that's interesting, but that's also interesting because it tells us about what a healthy brain should look like and how a healthy function should look and, and tells us something about the variety. and Yeah, and I think, I think that's actually um, more a result of people, the outside expectations of psychology than it is an internal expectation. Um, I totally agree. Because I think yeah. a lot of people have their thing that they're interested in, their behavior that they're interested in, like what do you think, like, how motivated are you? And what do you think of when you're deciding if you're going to output the work for this reward versus um, I'm interested in schizophrenia or bipolar yeah. disorder. <laughs> I mean, I am deeply, but... <laughs> but as it relates to... <laughs> as it relates what to What kind that. of behavior are and you going to do? And I would be just as happy looking at um, how decision-making changes in healthy aging. Yeah. Um, and how people... It's very interesting. People who are older tend to discount um, risks a lot more and um, perceive their chances of reward as much higher. We think of it as being like a teenager problem. Yeah, yeah, we do. You slide back into that (laughs) decision making. That's evolution saying you already procreated. Move on. (laughs) on. Take some risks. Have some fun. So I think that um, really the money had been there for uh, to study these disorders that were costly to society. and But if you look at it from the inside out, you're like, I'm interested in this thing, and it impacts everything as far as I can tell. Yeah. It's always important. <laughs> exactly. And I know, like, I'm always thinking, learning is always important, and reward, and, like, risk-taking, it's... It's everywhere. It's all learning. It's and all the decisions we make. We're, yeah. we're somehow judging what is our reward and is it worth the risk that it will require. And, and forming that association is really like precursor to memory and memories everywhere. <laughs> so I think that I think that a lot of this um, psychology is usually this love of understanding either some kind of cognitive topic usually or a behavior. Mm-hmm. And then what falls out of that is... Um, re- the realization that you can really make an impact by helping clinical populations or really understanding different ways to help people's memory become better or changed or um, people's uh, decision-making to be better or changed yeah. and modified. So I absolutely agree with that. We, I just, think- we just have to say that it's only about <laughs> disorders to get the money. Um, it is about the disorders, but it's so much bigger than but that. But also, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that might also be the philosopher in me. I'm like, it's everywhere. It's everything. So I can tell you're in philosophy club. <laughs> <laughs> it's everywhere and everything. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's a good note to end on. All right. Um, so I just want to say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, however you're listening to it right now. Um, your review really helps me reach a larger audience. And I can get even more cool guests like Kate on the show. Um, and as always, you can follow me on Twitter at phdrinking. I also have a personal account at Sadie Witt. Um, Kate, do you have like a web, are you on the Northwestern website somewhere that people can find you? Yeah. Um, so I have the affective and clinical neuroscience lab website, um, on Northwestern's and I also have, um, an academia.edu and a research gate if you want to look up, um, what I'm in, what I'm doing right now in my current projects. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, I'll also add that, um, in the show notes so people can find you that way. Um, And yeah, thanks again for joining me on the show. This has been great. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And to all you listeners out there, cheers. Cheers.